This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 516. I'm really obsessed with people kind of just understanding how much do you listen, how much do you talk? Is your energy engaging or is it depleting? Are you a problem identifier or are you a solution provider? The most successful professionals have clarity and a plan. They live in accordance with their values and know how to pivot in the face of disruption. Yet most careers unfold accidentally, haphazardly, and with too much serendipity. That means lost traction, lost years, and lost opportunities. Hey there, I'm Jeff. This is the Read to Lead podcast. It's the podcast dedicated to your personal and professional growth. If you want to achieve true success in business and in life, it starts with intentional and consistent reading. I'm interviewing another author this week to help you do more of that. And that author is Scott Jeffrey Miller. His new book is Career on Course, 10 Strategies to Take Your Career from Accidental to Intentional. I plan to ask Scott to share about the foundational skill that permeates all 10 of his strategies, the importance of making a distinction between your personal and your professional values, how being a generalist or a specialist can and should shape your career path, and plenty more. Speaking of shaping your career path, that's what a Read to Lead Plus membership is designed to do. When you join the Read to Lead community with a Read to Lead Plus membership, you get access to my library of business book summaries with new ones being added regularly, access to interviews and articles not published anywhere else, monthly live streams and guest expert trainings, community challenges, network opportunities, And you surround yourself with like-minded people, the kind of people who, as I always say, take personal and professional development as seriously as you do. The cost is just $9 a month. And as if I didn't already make it as cheap as I possibly could, you can try it two weeks free just to make sure it's for you. To get started, just go to jeffbrown.me right now to start your two-week trial. Bruce recently did that. In fact, Daryl was so confident after his two-week trial that he went ahead and signed up for a whole year at just $99 for the entire year, giving himself two months free in the process. Either way, we'd love to have you $9 a month or $99 a year. It's your choice. But the first two weeks, again, are absolutely free. Go to jeffbrown.me. Scott Jeffrey Miller is a highly sought after speaker, author, and podcast host. He is a Wall Street Journal bestselling author and currently serves as Franklin Covey's Senior Advisor on Thought Leadership. Prior to his advisor role, Scott was a 25-year Franklin Covey associate, serving as the Chief Marketing Officer and Executive Vice President. He hosts On Leadership with Scott Miller, the world's largest weekly leadership podcast. His new book is called Career on Course, 10 Strategies to Take Your Career from Accidental to Intentional. Well, Scott, it's been too long. I think almost five years since I've had you on the podcast to talk about one of your many, many books. I think this is like book seven now we're talking about today. So uh, long overdue to have you back. Thank you so much for being here. And thank you for all you've been doing in the world of books. You've yourself interviewed a, a number of authors on podcasts and other things that you've done. So so welcome. And we're so excited to have you here. Hey, it's The pleasure is all mine. You and I share a lot of passions. One, of course, is the power of people sharing their ideas through writing books, like you said, uh, seven books in five years, probably a couple too many. And to maybe your listeners and viewers for 
I've got a few more in the works too. So I'll look, I'll look forward to our next interview in five years. Again, stand by. <laughs> Hopefully. Well, you know, a lot has changed uh, in your career in just the last few years since I, since I interviewed you. What, what have you been up to other than writing books in that, in that time? Well, raising humans. My wife and I, as you know, have three young sons, nine, 12, and 13, and they're kicking my you-know-what every day. But uh, <laughs> that's my primary goal now, right? As a reluctant yeah. father, by the way, is launching these three young boys into the world as gentlemen, uh, podcasting a lot, obviously, speaking, keynoting. I um, did launch a talent agency. So I have partners in a firm called Gray Miller. We're a literary speaking and talent agency that's exploded. Mm. And I uh, wrote this new book called Career on Course, number seven. I'm super passionate about it. Probably my favorite of all of my books because I'm so obsessed with helping people become a little more intentional with their careers. Mm. So more of the same, uh, but my passion has not subsided about reading like you read a couple hundred books a year and newspapers and magazines all in print to some mm. people's horror, including <laughs> my sons. They don't understand what these print magazines are showing up at the house every day. Uh, and I forced him to read the newspaper mm. uh, in print. We have three USA Today print subscriptions that come to the house every morning. <laughs> My boys are forced to read the USA Today newspaper over breakfast and dinner. And, and I assume uh, at some point, maybe around the dinner table, there's conversations about what they read. Oh, forced. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Forced conversations. I mean, you and I both know if you want to be a persuasive influential communicator, you have to have a robust vocabulary. You have to have yeah. experience to draw upon. And so, yeah, they are strongly encouraged to come to the dinner table with insights from what they read. Unfortunately, there's not a lot going on good in the world that's printed in paper. So right. the USA Today does a good job of making it visually appealing as well. So wow. I'm hopefully creating readers as part of my legacy and my wife's legacy. Excellent. Well, before we get into the, the strategies that, that you lay out in the book, talk about, Scott, what you consider to be the, the foundational skill that permeates all 10 of these. Oh, self-awareness, for sure. This is a topic that I'm absolutely obsessed with mm -hmm. because all of us have lower self-awareness than we think we do. I have, like you, had a long career, two steps forward, one steps back, right? My culmination was as the CMO of the Franklin Covey Company, Stephen Covey's company, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Uh, gosh, Jeff, I interviewed six, seven hundred people for jobs. I hired several hundred, you know, terminated close to 20 people in my career. None of them were because of lack of technical skill. Mm. All of them were lack of self-awareness. They had no idea what it was like to work with them, to lead them, to be led by them, to be on a Teams or a Zoom meeting with them or a Monday morning conference call or stand in a trade show to collaborate on a project. Mm. So if there was only one strategy of all 10 of them, it would be about studying yourself, strategy three, mm. becoming fiercely more attuned to what's it like to work with me? <laughs> what's it like to be in a sales meeting with me? What's it like to be married to me, to live next door to me, to play pickleball with me? <laughs> the book is more than just your career. So I am, as you can tell from my passion this early morning, I'm really obsessed with people kind of just understanding how much do you listen? How much do you talk? Is your energy engaging or is it depleting? Mm. Are you a problem identifier or are you a solution provider? Mm. And the more you study yourself, in combination with studying others that you admire and that have mentored you, you're going to increase the likelihood mm. that you have a career that's more intentional 
unless accidental or led by someone else in the company. Well, let's start with the first strategy that you lay out in the book. Uh, this is the strategy of knowing your professional values. And, and here you ask us, Scott, to differentiate between personal and professional values. And at first blush, I'm like, well, aren't those kind of the same or shouldn't they be the same? And, and you say that there will be moments of, of incongruence between them. Can you, can you explain that? Sure. So as you mentioned, the book is titled Career on Course, 10 Strategies to Take Your Career from Accidental to Intentional. The first strategy is called Know Your Professional Values. And I'll tell you, it's gotten a little bit of a firestorm on LinkedIn because all the values experts, not quite not sure what makes you a values expert other than being mm-hmm. a human, has said, no, no, you only have one set of values. And I've taken some heat on this and you know, you don't become the officer in a public company without being accustomed to taking heat. I do think you had two sets of values, or maybe it's two lists of values within mm-hmm. one set, right? That's, a, that's a, a nuance. I think people need to identify your personal values. Duh. And by the way, most don't. Mm. If you were to ask most people, what are your personal values? They would say liberty and freedom. And what, they make something up. <laughs> well, I know my, my personal values. There's seven of them. Purpose, health, integrity, loyalty, abundance, and learning. Positivity is the seventh one. My professional, those are my personal values. Those are the values with which I look at my life. Purpose, health, integrity, loyalty, positivity, abundance, and learning. On the professional side, however, my first value is to maximize my income. Mm. My avocation is not my vocation. I'm the sole provider for five people, three young boys, my wife, and myself. And so my number one professional value is maximize my income. My number two professional value is to work with and for brands or a brand that I'm proud of. And number three is to work with and for people that I love and who love me and we respect each other. And I make all of my professional decisions through that lens. My my career is not my purpose. My career doesn't necessarily drive my health. Now, my personal values come in tune with that. The reason I'm passionate about this is because I don't think most readers, most professionals have identified their personal and their professional values and then make decisions through them. And sometimes they are in conflict and sometimes they're congruent. That's not a bad or good thing, but it's helpful to know. I've seen a lot of careers that are stalled or hijacked because someone was really living their personal values and hadn't identified their professional values. And they were making decisions based on certain roles in their life that were changing and didn't know. Mm. I think the exercise is instrumental to understanding what do you value professionally? Maybe it's income, maybe it's equity, maybe it's promotion, title, flexibility, stability, security, a foreign assignment, creativity, latitude, working for a great leader, launching cool projects, whatever it is, there's no right or wrong answer. By the way, you should pick your values based only on what you think, not on what sounds cool to someone else. I don't give a flying flip what Jeff Brown <laughs> thinks about my values. I do care what he thinks about my books, so I won't get invited <laughs> off. But I think I, I say this with great passion because this is, I think, the first strategy to creating an intentional career. That's the theme of the book. Stop giving your career up accidentally to other people, right? Have a plan or be part of someone else's act or be acted upon. You, know, you mentioned the word exercise. It reminded me that there are many great exercises at the end of uh, each chapter. Uh, some might take uh, as many as a few days or even a few weeks, but I think if you'll take the time to work through these, it's going to make a huge difference in making this content actionable. Talk a bit about the difference, Scott, between being a generalist and a specialist career-wise. How could or should this shape someone's career path? 
Well, this is chapter two, right? Strategy two. Uh, I really co-opted it from David Epstein. He wrote a phenomenal book called Range. Highly recommend the book Range. And it was a gift that David Epstein gave to me because there's two types of professionals, those that are Mm. specialist and those that are generalist. Yes, you could be some of each. Don't get get fixated on the concept, right? I really wrote that chapter for people like me who are generalists. I, I was raised in a family where stability was the number one value of my family. Mm. Not joy, not fun, not frivolity, not happiness, not physical touch, not comfort, not validation. The number one value was stability because of how my parents were raised in their family with no stability. Mm. And so when I was raised, we, my brother and I, who's four years older, very much were inculcated to get the badge, like the badge, right? Engineer, lawyer, doctor, whatever it was. Heck, barber, you had to have a badge. My brother went on and became a chemical engineer, went to MIT and followed the path. I didn't. Mm. I went and became a realtor. I worked on presidential campaigns. I would have got a, got a communication education at a, at a liberal arts school. But I went on and was in sales and sales leadership and marketing and thought leadership, podcasting, keynoting. To this day, my parents have no idea how I earn a living. I'm kind of the black sheep of the family, even though I out my brother almost four to one economically who's a genius. Mm. But for me, I was always in this sort of comparison conundrum of comparing myself, my professional self-worth, my income, my skills, my trajectory to those people who were specialists, meaning they Mm. came out of high school knowing I'm going to be a veterinarian. I'm going to be an anesthesiologist. I want to be a sports agent. I never had that clarity. Hell, Jeff, I still don't have that clarity. And I'm 56. (laughs) What this gave to me was a liberation. Scott, it's going to be okay, right? Generalists, I think, are people like me that are that are multi-passionate. We have a lot of interests. And if you don't corral those interests, if you don't knit them together, then you can't monetize them. And so this chapter really validates specialists, but it also empowers and emboldens generalists to say, it's okay. Stop comparing yourself to the patent attorney. That's unfair. She knows what she wants to do how she's going to pay back her half million dollars of loans right out of college. And generalists, go do what makes you happy, Mm. but you got to tease it together so that you can monetize your skills in a way that someone will pay for. Otherwise, you'll be a generalist with a 40-year career and never probably have gained traction and Mm. built the economic return you need on your multi-passions deployed in the careers. Mm. You can be both. You can be a subset. Some people get hooked up on, am I this or am I that? It's not meant to label you. It's meant to... I think validate both and just help you get an awareness of, okay, I'm a generalist. That's great. Might be a late bloomer. How am I going to make that work for me and my marketability over the course of my multi-decade career? We talked a bit about self-awareness permeating all of these strategies. And you mentioned briefly uh, the strategy of study yourself. Um, What have you found, Scott, to be some of the more common errors that people tend to make when doing that, when studying themselves? Common areas in terms of mistakes or in successes? Uh, mistakes. Oh, they don't ask. I mean, they, they go to dinner. Like, here's a good example. I'm in Tampa this morning. Last night, had a dinner with uh, a company president and a chief of staff. Two different companies were having a meeting today to put together a deal. Mm. Multiple times through dinner. I'm 56, fairly seasoned guy, a depth communicator, right? I have confidence in my expertise. I know what I'm not great at parenting. Um, And and during dinner, I was just trying to calibrate, you know, how much am I talking? How much am I listening? Are my stories one-upping other people? Am I validating others? Am I generally interested in what they're saying? And is my body language congruent with that? Is my napkin on my lap? 
Not, not paranoid, meaning, you know, am I showing good table manners? Don't mistake that as saying I was obsessed all evening with me, but I was just thinking, what's it like to have dinner with Scott Miller? Would someone say he was lovely, he was interested, and he was interesting? And so I think most people don't self-reflect. Mm. Most people, what they don't do is walk back to their hotel room and say, hey, Paul, can I ask you a question? Sure, Scott. What's it like to have a business dinner with me? What do, what do you mean? What's it like? I'd love to know two or three things that I do to make business dinners valuable and maybe two or three things that I do that detracts or makes them dreaded. As you mentioned, there are 10 exercises, one for each strategy. In this chapter, I encourage readers to go form what I call your team of eight, four people in your personal life and four in your professional life and ask them, what do I do that annoys you? And what do I do that delights you? Mm. To answer your question, I don't think readers ask enough. Mm. We take our egos very personally. We're very tender people. We take ourselves way too seriously. But when you go ask someone, hey, when I'm at a business center with you, would you tell me one or two things I could do to make it more pleasant, more valuable? And if you trust the person and they're wise and they're judicious, they'll give you some feedback if you set the conditions. The whole chapter is about how do you set the conditions to allow other people to give you constructive feedback about what it's like to be in any relationship with you. Mm. I ask this all the time of people. You mentioned Stephen R. Covey earlier. Beginning with the end in mind, one of the seven habits is, is something you encourage us to do with regard to our career. Talk about backcasting. How does that fit in here? You are like, you are a smooth host. I love the way you are weaving these questions in to keep us going. Strategy four is really about thinking, thinking of your career long-term. This is about thinking of your career in terms of 20, 30 years, not what's next, but what's after what's next. Most of us are going to work from 22 to 72. Mm. That's kind of sobering, right? But you're going to have a 50-year career. Mm. If you're a capitalist, you are. <laughs> um, maybe not in Spain. <laughs> they, they know something Americans don't know. Uh, this is about thinking of your career in a long-term view, mm. in a short-term world. This is about not forecasting. So what's next? What's next month? What's my next title? But really thinking long-term, what's the ultimate? Where am I going? Mm. Do I want to be the CEO? Do I want to be the COO? Do I want to be the VP of the Western region? Do I want to be an entrepreneur? Do I want to be retired? Like, what's the, what's the ultimate goal? I will never be retired with three young boys. They apparently <laughs> want to go to college and they want braces and play tennis. But I, I, I encourage people in the, in the book, I have a long map to think what's the ultimate goal and then work backwards. Instead of forecasting what's next, look at the end and then backcast. If you want to be the CEO, then you probably have to be in the C-suite for a couple of years. COO, CRO, CIO. And then you probably need to be an EVP and an SVP and a VP and a director and a manager. You need supply chain experience, operations, product development. You need to read a P&L. You probably then need to have some international experience, hiring, hiring. You get the point. Mm. But then the backcast, what are all those roles I'm going to need? And what are the talents and skills I'm going to need to master in each of those roles to get to the next one? Mm. This is a, a process I think very few people employ in their career. Listen. If you're 28 years old, you may not know what you want to do when you're 68. I get it. You probably want to be playing pickleball. Me too. The genius of this is I believe in my 30 years of experience, Jeff, most people think of what's next. Oh, I'm gonna, I want an $8,000 raise. I want to move up to a manager. And they just kind of keep moving that way versus having a plan, right? Again, have a plan or become part of someone else's. Mm. When you walked through this, your plan, as I recall, included Potentially public office. 
Did it not? It did. I had always planned to run for the second congressional district in Park City in Salt Lake City, Utah, even when I lived in Florida. And that was going to be in 2026. Uh, went to the gym, fell in love, got married, had three boys. My wife said, oh, hell no, you're not <laughs> going to run for Congress. Have you seen that salary with five people? Yeah. It's your butt to work, bro. So <laughs> that dream was quashed by my unrequiting love for Stephanie Miller. <laughs> well, we, we all have a personal brand, of course, whether that's defined by our own lack of, of attention to it, I guess, or whether it's formed intentionally. How do you define personal brand yourself? Well, to your point, everybody has one, right? And whether it's created deliberately or accidentally, you have a brand. Here's a good example. My brand is uh, I'm sort of, I have an indefatigable energy level. You can tell this from the podcast. (laughs) Uh, I like to be an energy infuser. Mm -hmm. I'm enormously creative. Uh, I have a big personality. I can be seen as sometimes self-serving. I can run roughshod over people. There used to be a joke at Franklin Covey, best idea wins as long as it's Scott's. I tend to steal the spotlight. I interrupt. I'm extremely loyal. My story is usually better than your story. I offer apologies easily. Mm. I'm extraordinarily abundant. I'm extremely forgiving. Mm. I sometimes forget you're in the room. You get the point, right? These are, <laughs> these are positives and negatives, but I am self-aware. Why? Because I've been studying myself for many decades. I've been asking people. Everybody has a brand. Mm. Your brand may be you ask great questions. Your brand may be you're super punctual. Your brand may be you're always the first person to raise your hand or you're always the last person to raise. Whatever it is, you have a brand and you need to know what it is and decide, is it working for me in my industry, in my organization, in my life, in my relationships? And does your brand change with your roles? It's never too late to change your brand. You, you can't talk yourself out of a problem that you behaved yourself into. As quoted by Stephen Covey, you could only behave yourself out of it. And the book, the strategy is really about knowing your brand. Is the brand that you have, the brand you want, is the brand you have, the brand others perceive? And what do you need to do differently to behave yourself into the brand that's going to help you? This is not a new idea. Everybody has a brand. We get this. But for most of us, it's probably accidental and haphazard sometimes. I spent many of my years confusing being fearless with being reckless. I thought being fearless was always like, taking on the underdog and speaking my mind when many times my fearlessness was actually being reckless with my brand and other people's feelings. And it was Seth Godin, my friend and prolific author that taught me the difference between being reckless and being fearless. And now I think my brand is more fearless and less reckless because I was open to learning that. And I've studied myself around that topic. And one of the things you mentioned having been good at in your own career is disrupting yourself. What, what does that look like in, in practice? And, and why would you say that it's especially important to have that skill in today's career culture? Well, this is why I wrote the book. About seven years ago, one of my colleagues at Franklin Covey came into an executive team meeting. She said in an appropriate setting, you're never in the room when your career is decided for you. I mean, this was disgusting mm. and true. <laughs> and I thought, gosh, it's so true. Yeah. For the vast majority of us, we're never in the room when our careers decided for us. The CFO, the comptroller, the CF, whoever it is, right? Mm. We're cutting here, we're moving there. No, she's not, or he's not ready for that foreign assignment. And so that really was about taking control of your career. I, I tell you, I think 
of all the things that I've done the best in my career, Jeff, and by the way, you know, I've been fired. I've been demoted. I've been promoted. I've had an amazing career, kind of always two steps forward, one step back. Why? Because I'm a human and I make mistakes and I learn from them and move on. But I think the best thing I've done in my career was I always took myself out of the job that I was in. No one took me out, meaning no one came to me and said, Scott, we think it's time, right? I always disrupted myself. I mastered the job and I moved on. I promoted myself or I disrupted myself. Mm. I'm a pretty fearless person. And again, I don't have the luxury of quitting my job. I've got three young boys and a wife that's a full-time mom and home manager. Mm. They're dependent upon me. I have responsibilities to my wife. I make commitments and I'm keeping them. Integrity and loyalty are two of my personal values. They're not just pablum on a page. Mm. So this idea of disrupting yourself really understands that the social science shows that at about year three, most of us have mastered the job we're in. And subconsciously, according to Whitney Johnson, who wrote the book, Disrupt Yourself, most of us are being recognized by others that were kind of phoning it in. Mm. And you need to recognize that the science shows when you've mastered something, you don't tend to give it your all. You tend to get complacent and bored and other people recognize it before you do and they make judgments about you. Mm. So this takes courage. It takes planning. It takes reading the book career on course so that when it's time to disrupt yourself, you're doing it before someone else is doing it for you or to you because that rarely ends well. And, and I think that ties in quite nicely with the next strategy I wanted to ask you about. And that's the one called do the job you're hired for plus wow. the one you want. What, what would you say are some of the common maybe misconceptions about this strategy? I see it frequently. Someone will come to me in the company and say, hey, Scott, I'm thinking about applying for a new job in the organization. And I say, great. Uh, hey, tell me, what would... Um, what would your current leader, Jeff, say about your performance? Oh my gosh, I think he would say, I'm crushing it. I mean, he loves me, we get along great. I meet all my goals, everything is great. Because you know, I mean, Jeff's gonna have to sign off on releasing you to apply for this new job as company protocol. Welcome to the Fortune 5000. And then inevitably, three days later, I'll find Jeff in the lunchroom. Hey, Jeff, good to see you, man. How is Asia? Yeah, glad to have you back. Hey, tell me, um, Tom, he seems like a great high potential. Tell me about Tom. And you say, yeah, Tom's a great guy. I just wish he would actually meet his quarters. He's missed four of his last 12 quarters in revenue. I like Tom, but Tom needs to focus less on all the team birthday parties and more on <laughs> delivering on his quarters. Yeah. And so there's always a chasm between how the leader sees their team's contribution, how the person sees mm. how their leader sees their contribution. The best way to get promoted is to crush your current job. Yes, there are outliers. Yes, there are companies that have corrupt systems or bad leaders, blah, blah, blah. Welcome to humans. If you want to get promoted, you need your leader to be your champion. You've got to crush the job you're in. Mm. Yes, you should show ambition. Yes, you should do additional work, take on more projects, add something onto your plate. But if I look back at my career, always how I was promoted was because I crushed the job I was in, right? It's the, it's the law of the harvest. Mm. There are times to plant and there are times to harvest. Mm. And I think most people harvest too soon. You have to understand what is the promotion strategy of your organization. And it requires sometimes an unnatural level of patience. I think generally speaking, good things come to those who wait. Not wait 10 years, but understand what is the process in this company to get promoted? Can I tolerate that in my timeline? And once I understand that, does crushing the job I'm in have a correlation with my promotion? I'm going to guess in most companies, the answer is yes. 
you reminded me early in my career, I remember desiring a certain position and, and looking around me and seeing all the people who were in these positions and they'd been in them for decades already. And I thought, how is this ever going to happen for me? Someone would have to die. And then somebody died. <laughs> yeah. Or you may have to leave, right? You may yeah. have to make a tough decision and say, hey, the, the cards aren't stacking in my favor. I need to disrupt myself, not blame the company, not blame their systems, right? Right. But just take control of your career and say, hey, um, this isn't working. How do I keep crushing my job? Because the fact of the matter is they're going to call for a reference. And most companies are loath to give you a reference because of the litigiousness around it, unless you crushed your job. And then the CHRO or your boss is going to say, let me tell you, I'm sad that Scott left. Actually, he made 12 of his 13 quarters consecutively. We're sorry he left. We hope he comes back. You are lucky to have him. I give those recommendations frequently when they are deserved. Mm. Well, I have a couple of questions I want to ask, not directly related to the book. Before I jump into that, though, what haven't I asked you about the book that you want to make sure we know or, or walk away with? Gosh, you've been such a great seamless interviewer. Thank you for walking through most of the 10 strategies. The book is an easy breezy read, but because there are 10 exercises, this is going to protract the time it takes to absorb the book. Mm -hmm. This is a book that you could read in three hours, but that you would apply in days and weeks. For those who want to read the book, it's in print and audio. I'm taping the audio book this week when I'm back in Salt Lake City which is a labor of love, because as you know, it's tough to read an audiobook, especially when you're a stutterer like I am. Mm. I have a pretty strong speech impediment. Uh, when you buy the book, set aside some time. Don't circumvent the exercises. They were put in there with great intention and love for you and your career. Take the time to work through the exercises. You can move through the chapters on how to having everything done, but that's maybe a surprise to a lot of readers already on Amazon are saying, I didn't realize for being a small book, it actually is quite a bit of investment. I need more time to get through this. Yeah. Thanks for asking. The last time you were here, I asked you to recommend some books and you recommended five great ones. Uh, I was delighted as I was looking at this list. I've read four of the five. Of course, Seven Habits, Speed of Trust, Barking Up the Wrong Tree. That's the one I haven't gotten to yet. Mm. And you recommended A Curious Mind by Brian Grazer. Yes. Multipliers by Weissman. All fantastic books. Well, the four of the five that I've read, I can attest are fantastic. I'm sure Eric's is as well. I would love for you to think back over the last four or five years since we last spoke. What have you read since then that stands out to you as being sort of really uh, worth recommending? Oh, I'll give you one. I'll give you one in particular. And I wasn't quite sure what five I said, so I was a little anxious (laughs) as you were going. (laughs) Kim Scott wrote a book called Radical Candor. Mm -hmm. And I think this is the best communication book in the space. Bright orange, can't miss it. Everyone, Mm -hmm. first buy Career and Course. No, first buy Radical Candor and then buy Career and Course. (laughs) Uh, I'm I'm an unabashed evangelist for this book. Kim says that most of us as leaders, as spouses, as friends, as colleagues, don't exercise what she calls radical candor, that what we do is we exercise something called ruinous empathy, where we don't exercise the courage, the respect, the love for other people to tell them how we're feeling, to tell them how we're receiving them. So people understand they can study themselves and build their skills better. The opposite of radical candor is ruinous empathy. Nearly all, if not all, conflict in life comes from mismatched or unfulfilled expectations. How do you know how you're received at dinner? How do you know if your 
personality is grating on people or booing them and inspiring them unless you ask and you uh, exercise radical candor. Now, this doesn't mean that you go and ask in every conversation, what am I like? What am I like? What am I like? That's like a dog. Uh, excellent book on how to facilitate high courage conversations, how to get to the root cause. She has some amazing stories about her own career and how Sheryl Sandberg, former COO of Meta and at Google, where she worked, mm. intervened with her about some of her own speech patterns and some of the things she said. Great stories in the book. I am a, I am a strong advocate of everyone. If you're in the business of communication, uh, which you are, then mm-hmm. radical candor will fundamentally change the way you speak with and to mm-hmm. and for everyone in your life. Yeah, we're all we're all in the business of communication for sure. You you just demonstrated a skill, Scott, that I think a lot of people want to get better at. Uh, at least that's what I found. And oh, that's... please tell me because <laughs> I don't know what you're going to say. <laughs> well, that is very you know, off the cuff. You didn't know this question was coming. Be able to describe and summarize for us the meat of what a book you read had to had to share. I lead a, a cohort called Note Making Mastery. And it's it's about helping people develop a skill of taking everything that's coming at them, collecting just the best parts, connecting new ideas to existing ideas, distilling that, crystallizing that down to its essence, and then from that, creating new things with it. As someone who seemingly to me is very good at that, what are the strategies you use to make sure that the things you learn, the things you want to remember don't get lost? Well, I may answer this in a roundabout way. Like you, I'm privileged to host a very popular podcast. In fact, On Leadership with Scott Miller is now the world's largest weekly leadership podcast. I interview 105 people a year on it. And then I have C-Suite Conversations, which is 50 interviews a year, a new podcast, career and course, 200 interviews a year. I mean, it's insane. (laughs) One of my communication mantras, Mm. highest value information in the fewest number of words. And so whenever I'm speaking, I'm trying to give the highest value information, the fewest number of words. Perhaps some of your listeners are chuckling at the irony of how much I've talked today. (laughs) Um, Your question was about how do I synthesize and retain information? I read, like you, uh, an absurd amount. It's my passion. I don't watch TV. I don't watch movies. I've watched five movies in my life, and three of them were the Austin Powers trilogy. So you can see (laughs) my movie recommendations are pretty low. And whenever I read a book, I try to take away a couple of nuggets. This isn't profound. I remember, you know, two big ideas from Kim Scott's book and two big ideas from Donald Miller's book and one big idea from Seth Godin's book and Mm. Dan Pink's book and Susan Cain. I try not to get a wash in all the ideas. I take one or two things away and imprint it deeply on my psyche, on my behavior, on my mindset. So I, I could name you 300 books and tell you one big idea that I took away from it. Quite frankly, range, the only thing I remember is journalists and specialists, and I can speak about it as if I wrote the book. Mm-hmm. So that's what I do. And I'm sure I leave a lot of the cutting room floor, but because I choose to yeah. focus in on one or two big takeaways, I speak about it, I evangelize it, I teach it, and therefore it becomes second nature to me. Uh, you hit on something I think a lot of people don't understand or miss. Books are written for a very broad audience. And your job as you read a book is to find the one or two things that apply to you. And, and it's not its not necessarily going to be everything in the book. It's not going to be a lot. It's often going to be just one or two or maybe three really big ideas. So 
Thanks for reminding us of that, Scott. I appreciate it. Well, the book again is called Career on Course, 10 Strategies to Take Your Career from Accidental to Intentional. His name is Scott Jeffrey Miller. Thank you so much again, Scott, for being here today. Jeff, I appreciate you shining your spotlight and your platform on me. You're a class act. You can pick up Scott's book wherever you buy books. It released just last week. It's published by Baker Books, the same company that published my book a few years ago, so it's got to be good. For all the resources and links Scott and I talked about, you can go to the show notes page for this episode. That's at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 516 for episode 516. There you'll also find a link for more information on a Read to Lead Plus membership and how to join the Read to Lead community online. Or you can go to jeffbrown.me. Right now, today, you can start with a free two-week trial to make sure it's right for you. One more time, that's jeffbrown.me. That does it for another episode. Hope to see you for the next one. Until then, as always, remember, leaders read and readers lead. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight Lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big.